got to tell you, I heard a story one day about a pastor who moved into a small town. Now, he doesn't tell us what denomination, so I'll leave that to your imagination. But he wanted to impress his congregation and make them believe that he could perform miracles. So he went into an animal store where he bought himself a parrot. He taught the parrot to speak and to perform some tricks. He decided to perform a miracle for his sermon the following Sunday. I'm glad I read this before I put my sermon together, otherwise I might have hired a parrot too, but I didn't. So on Saturday night, he bought two loaves of bread and gave them to the parrot. He told the parrot to go onto the roof of the church, and during the service the next morning, when he says, God, send me down some bread, the parrot must send down into the church one loaf at a time. So during the service the next morning, the pastor cried out to his congregation, I can perform miracles. I can make bread come down from heaven. God, send me down some bread. And a loaf of bread fell from heaven. And the congregation was in awe of the pastor. They could not believe that he could perform miracles. And they said, do it again. The pastor cried out again, God, send down some bread. Yet another loaf of bread fell from heaven. The congregation began to praise the pastor. Again, again, they shouted. However, he got, he got a little carried away in his excitement, that, so excitement, so carried away that he forgot that there were only two loaves. And so he cried out for more bread a third time. Then the congregation was astounded to hear a voice answer back, what do you think I've got up here, a bakery? Jesus announces himself to the people as the bread of life. Now, the way my mind works, I visualize a person sitting on a park bench where a flock of pigeons gather around the person, and when that person throws the breadcrumbs to the birds, they stay and they eat, eat to their fill. And if that person gets up and moves to another spot, the pigeons will find him or her and gather around and take whatever crumbs are thrown to them. And even if the person throws bread, when it's all gone, so are they. There have been people who have left parishes giving the excuse they were not being fed. I've heard that a time or two in my career. Now, I understand what they're trying to say, but maybe, maybe they're eating the wrong bread. It seems they may have been there because they ate the bread of the world and not the bread of life. They ate the bread that only satisfied their hunger temporarily while the church was trying to follow the Lord's desire to provide the spiritual food that would last eternally. Jesus told the people, I tell you the truth. You are looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Jesus was telling them, You have seen how God's grace enabled a crowd to be fed. Your thoughts ought to be have turned to the God who did these things, but instead, all that you are thinking about is bread. In his commentary on John, William Barclay wrote, 
It is as if Jesus said, you cannot think about your souls for thinking of your stomachs. Barclay tells a story that once Napoleon and an acquaintance were talking about life, and it was dark, and they walked to the window, and Napoleon, who had very sharp eyes while his friend was dim-sighted, pointed to the sky and says, Do you see those stars? He asked. No, his friend answered. I can't see them. That, said Napoleon, is the difference between you and me. The man who is earthbound is living half a life. If um, it's a man with vision who looks at the horizon and sees the stars who is truly alive. Jesus' command to those people and to us came in one sentence. One sentence. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. One more time. Do not work for the food that spoils, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. I got to go off, off, off my uh, thing for a minute because Beth reminded me. I picked on the Methodists a little earlier. In the Episcopal Church, you know, we believe that there, when I consecrate the bread, I'm it's, there's a real presence. We don't know how that works, but we know that somehow the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, comes into the bread and wine. Our Catholic friends believe that it's transubstantiation, that it actually becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Our Methodist friends don't have exactly the same. They think it's very important. It's real presence, not real presence, but when I was in seminary, I started seminary at a, at a Methodist seminary in Orlando only to go on to uh, Neshota House, the Episcopal uh, Seminary in Wisconsin. But while I was at Neshota, we would share communion once a week with the Methodists and others, and um, Asbury was open to all denominations. We all studied the law, and we had some Episcopal um, professors there. But at communion, the, 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 the pastor, the Methodist pastor, stood up in front of everybody, and they had a loaf of bread. You know, many churches do loaves of bread. And she broke the bread. Now, you could tell the Episcopalians. The Methodists and others were sitting there solemnly. The Episcopalians were in a three-point stance heading for the crumbs that hit the floor. <laughs> That's an Episcopalian. Anyway... In the 55th chapter of Isaiah, we read of God's invitation to the thirsty. Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters and you, will have, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money in what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul, your soul will delight in the riches of fare. This is a call to all of us to come and share in the heritage of the servants of the Lord. You see, the gates of heaven, the gates of the city of God stand open, and a banquet is spread, and all that remains is for the invited guest to come. We are told precisely what that delightful and satisfying food is. Want to know what it is? Two things. That delightful and satisfying food is mercy and pardon. Mercy and pardon. 
And it's freely available because, you see, it's already been paid for when Christ went to the cross. The contemporary Christian band, Sidewalk Prophets, I don't know if any of you heard them, but, uh, they're a pretty decent band, but they had a song out at one time, a Christian song called Come to the Table. And the lyrics begin with this. We all start on the outside, the outside looking in. This is where the grace begins. We were hungry, we were thirsty, with nothing left to give. Oh, the shape that we were in. And just when all hope seemed lost, love opened the door for us. He said, come to the table. Come, join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Sit down and be free. Well, there's two kinds of hunger. There's physical hunger, which physical food can satisfy, but there is spiritual hunger, which food can never satisfy. And we, we can be rich, as rich as Bill Gates and as rich as others, and, and still have an incompleteness in our lives, still not completed. And maybe that's because even though we may give generously to the needy, somehow we're lacking and trying to satisfy our spiritual hunger. But of course, that still isn't what Jesus was talking about. When he was talking about work, Jesus told the people he was the bread of life, and only through him could they have eternal life. He said, do not work for the food which perishes, but work for the food which lasts and gives eternal life. Now, of course, the crowd asked, well, what are we to do to work the works of God? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God. You ready? To believe in him whom he sent. This is the work of God, to believe that God sent Jesus Christ for all of us. That's the work of God. Now, the Jews were taught in terms of good works, believing that a person, by living a good life, could earn favor with God. They believed that there were three classes of men, those who were good, those who were bad, and those in the middle, who, by the way, by doing one more good work, could be transferred to the category of the good. So when they asked Jesus about the work of God, they expected him to lay down a list of things to do. I guess they were expecting what every married man knows about, that list that comes from the wife. I just went through that in the utility room. The replacement of simple washer and dryer meant scrubbing the walls, painting the walls, putting up new cabinets, taking down old cabinets. All she wanted was a new washer and dryer. Please don't tell her I told that story. God said that his work was to believe in him whom God had sent, to believe in Christ. And we could get into a discourse in what James wrote about work. You may be familiar with James writing on work and what Paul taught about work and grace. But what Jesus was trying to get across to the people, us included, is that God is our Father and he loves us and wants nothing more than to forgive, that our separation from God has been taken away and a new relationship with him has been made possible by his Son, Jesus.
But with these new relationships with God, there are certain requirements. Here comes, here comes the but. There are certain requirements. Now, we know what God is like. Our lives must answer to that knowledge. Once you've been taught about God, you have no excuse for going the other way. You know that. The answer will be in three directions, each of which corresponds to what Jesus told us of God. Number one, God is love. Therefore, in our lives, there must be love and service to others corresponding with the love of God. And there must be forgiveness for others corresponding to the love of God and His forgiveness. Number two, God is holiness. Therefore, in our lives, there must be purity corresponding to the love holiness of God. And then third and finally, God is wisdom. Therefore, in our lives, there must be complete submission and trust corresponding to the wisdom of God. We need to trust. We need to believe. We need to obey. We need to trust in the wisdom of God. And when we're making choices every day, if you ask God's help and he gives you an answer and you say, no, not that one, God. What's the next one? You know, you're like the catcher behind the plate doing one of these things and the pitcher's up there going... When God tells you something, he probably means it, right? So, the essence of the Christian life is a new relationship to God, a relationship offered by him and made possible by the revelation which Jesus gave us of him, a relationship which in issues in that service, purity, and trust, which are the reflection of God. This is the work which God wishes us and enables us to do. Amen.